Hello and welcome to the menu, Monaco's program on great food, drink and top-notch hospitality. I am Markus Hippi. In the next half an hour we pay tribute to those restaurants in London that have for years quietly served their communities without fanfare or the help of PR agencies. The book is not about the foodie perception of London. It's about the perception of London that people have from every culture, from every kind of profession every day. I'm interested in how Londoners eat every day. Then we'll cross over to the other side of the Atlantic to visit the Cocoa Store in New York, a business that curates top chocolates from all over the world. I try a bite of chocolate that I never had before. My palate keeps evolving and changing and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I just said this. All that and much more ahead in the next 30 minutes here on The Menu. London is renowned for world-class cuisine, new restaurants opening weekly with a dizzying array of food options on offer, and yet there is another version of the city, one in which the capital's food culture flourishes without fanfare. The book London Feels Itself highlights the venues quietly serving their communities where many Londoners eat day to day. Monaco's Maile Evans caught up with the book's editor, the food writer and founder of Vittles newsletter, Jonathan Nunn, to find out more. We're in Grand Bangla, um, which is a Siletti-run canteen on Brick Lane. I think most people listening will know that Brick Lane is kind of an epicenter of South Asian food, particularly Bangladeshi food. But most places on this street are curry houses, which cater towards predominantly British clientele. And there's only three on here, which catered mainly towards Bangladeshis and Grand Bangla is one of them and probably my favourite. And we've got quite a, quite a feast set out before us. What have we got going on here today? Obviously with the Ganges there's a love of river fish in Bangladesh. So we've got fried river fish, we've got Kesti Mass, which are these sort of tiny um, sprats, almost like anchovy-like, and they're in a curry. Shudki Bortha, which is a fermented fish paste but they're all the kind of things that in the 1970s when the curry houses were being set up they're exactly the kind of stuff that the British would hate lots of fish, pungent fermented foods, lots of plain rice, whereas the Indian food that the British wanted was kind of like lots of meat, bread you want the theatre of things and Bangladeshi food is incredibly complex, it's got like sour flavours a lot of fermented stuff. Actually, all the stuff which is actually kind of on trend now with sort of the British love of Thai food. Yet these canteens are like quite underused by British people, but heavily used um, within the Bangladeshi community around here. Why is this a good example of the types of places that you're interested in writing about, and particularly with London Feeds itself? Hmm. Well, a lot of London Feeds itself is about the changing use of space in London. I'm interested in the different ways that restaurants are used because often it's actually not about food at all. So in the 70s when Whitechapel started becoming a more Bangladeshi area, this spot was 
well situated one because of the cheapness of rents so th this used to be like a heavily jewish area it's always been a working class area no matter what sort of wave of immigration it is it's close to the city as well so you had a lot of city workers bankers who would want to have somewhere to eat after work and the curry houses really thrived um, bangladeshi owned curry houses catering towards a white british clientele and then there were always a few kind of spaces which had a different function and they were used by Bangladeshis and they often had a political function um, because there were a lot of different political movements on the road. So you had the Bangladeshi Youth League would meet up at certain restaurants and they would discuss politics and they would discuss revolution and they would discuss organising against a lot of the racism which they received. A lot of the curry houses here, they would tell you that many people back in the 70s would just walk out without paying. As those political movements have kind of faded, these places have taken on another role, which I think is a much more like religious role. So you've got the East London Mosque just down the road. And although it's quiet here now, if you come here at a time after mosque, it's packed with people and it's always packed with conversation. It might be religious conversation, it might be political conversation, but it's, it's a place to converse. I'm interested in how, yeah, these spaces keep renewing themselves. They keep changing depending on the context, depending on how East London changes, depending on which wave of immigration is here. We've got 25 essays mm. penned by a range of people. We've got politicians and they've got architects. Why do you go for that selection of, of folks and not go to necessarily maybe the foodies? If you ask 25 different food writers to contribute to the book, you'd get an interesting book, but you would get the perspectives of people whose primary interest is food. And therefore you would get a certain type of argument, I guess, repeated over the book. And what I wanted was for there to actually be a lot of people who are not associated with food at all. The book is not about the foodie perception of London. It's about the perception of London that people have from every culture, from every kind of profession every day. I'm interested in how Londoners eat every day. Open City, who are the publisher, they're an architecture charity. So architecture is a big theme throughout the book. There are architecture writers like Owen Hatherley, um, like Shahed Salim. But I think with every writer, including myself, we're all writing a little bit outside our comfort zones. I really like in the, um, I think it's in the introduction, you talk about the sort of quiet humanity mm. of spaces like this, that they aren't sort of the masterpieces, I guess, like sort of showboating pretension. Mm. In your mind, what are those moments or sort of details that you feel embody that idea of quiet humanity? Or how does that manifest itself when you visit somewhere and you think this is a space that is for a community? I think with a lot of the spaces in the book, whether it's community centres, whether it's canteens, whether it's even the baths in um, Canning Town, which has a, um, a canteen that you can eat at before and afterwards, a lot of what is great about them is that they have a different sense of time. It's not like a restaurant which often wants to get you in and out that wants to turn tables very quickly, that wants to get you to spend a lot of money um, in a very short amount of time before you leave. I think there's a sense in these spaces that you can linger, that they are a space, while not exactly home, that is akin to home. 
And people find that in many different spaces. They find it in the pub. They find it in community centres. But I'm interested in those spaces where, I guess, monetary transaction might be peripheral or like sometimes even absent. Okay. I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about guides. You've got like a list of recommendations mm. at the end of each chapter, but it's not like a straightforward route. It's kind of subject-driven by the essay that's, that's before it. Tell me a bit about how you kind of like to bring things together in a, in a way that maybe isn't as obvious or does kind of find connections between places that aren't just geographically linked. And when it came to the book, originally I wasn't actually going to have a restaurant guide in it because I became very ambivalent about restaurants during the pandemic. A lot of what restaurants pivoted to were actually more interesting and kind of equitable solutions to the problem of how do we feed people, how do we feed communities, than what they were before. And with the book, I originally wanted it to only concentrate on spaces that feed people which aren't restaurants. And then I changed my mind because I think there is still a lot of space to talk about restaurants that function in different ways. And these restaurants are really important to the way that Londoners eat every day. Even though not everyone eats at restaurants all the time, they're still very important. There's a sense of community pride, of civic pride, a lot of the restaurants which in the book have been kind of hubs of their community for many years. But I thought it might be interesting to take the subject of the initial chapter and to see if you could come up with groupings of restaurants that normally wouldn't ever be grouped together. A lot of the guides aren't actually geographically based but they're they're more based around a sort of theme so for example the chapter on the baths Stephen Baranya wrote about um, bath culture in Canning Town and at the Porchester baths one of the things that we always do after the baths is go eat because you're always ravenously hungry after a bath and a lot of the places that we were eating at were kind of related to the baths and who used them so the Canning Town Bath has a huge um, use of Russians, of people from Eastern Europe. There is a restaurant around the corner from the bars called Albina, which is a Ukrainian restaurant. And they just serve the kind of exact food that you want after spending two hours sweating your guts out. So a, a lot of dumplings, a lot of smoked pork and garlic, a lot of vodka. And they became actually as a sort of integral to the experience as the actual bars themselves. The Porchester bars in West London, there's a great Latvian place in the basement of a Latvian community centre, which not many people know about, even Latvians don't know about it, or lots of Latvians don't know about it. In East London, there's the, the Turkish Hammam in Dalston, which is right next door to Umut 2000, which is one of the best grill houses in East London. And these restaurants might never normally be grouped together, but I thought it might be interesting to sort of use the bars as the framing to, to group them together. Struck by this phrase, showcasing places where good food exists because of and not in spite of mm. the urban conditions that surround it. Spaces I want to cover are spaces which have been considered marginal or 
kind of like fit to be ignored by the people who kind of decide where what is interesting in London and, and sort of what the media should focus on. And that's marginally a sense of kind of physical space, so suburbs of London which aren't normally discussed um, in national reviews or in food lists, but also spaces um, which exist outside of the restaurant and they're often creative uses of spaces. So they might be in unexpected buildings, in industrial parks, in warehouses, allotments, these kind of like little pockets of space which exist outside of what is considered to be the mainstream. I guess the physical constrictions of those spaces and often the financial constrictions do breed this really interesting creativity. For example, Burgess Park, which um, Santiago Palufa writes about, one of the things we both felt is that it doesn't feel like London. You walk through the park on a sunny day and you have Latin American music, you have West African music, you have people dancing, you have all this food and all this noise and you feel like you're somewhere else. And yet, it's only because of London that that space exists. It's only London which would have this mixture of these exact groups of people. It's only London which would have this uh, park that was created through um, bombing during World War II. It used to be a, a space which um, was buildings, was housing, was eventually um, paved over and turned into a park. It simultaneously therefore feels like it's both not London and the most sort of extraordinary expression of London that you could have at the same time. It could only exist because of these urban conditions, whether it's immigration patterns, Southwark Council deciding that they would install physical barbecues, the way that Burgess Park kind of merges with the city in a really interesting way. It's not like a secluded park where you can forget you're in the city, you're always reminded that you're there. And one of the things I thought about during the editing of the book was from the perspective of someone a few decades from now who wants to know how London is ate and what gave us pleasure, that they could pick up this book and get a certain idea of what that was. Because I often read books about London and food and they don't really capture anything of my experience of London or the experience of anyone I know. It's a very rarefied experience, this idea of just eating at high-end East London restaurants. It looks towards the future and it looks towards the past as well. I do want it to be a kind of capsule of how we ate as well. Jonathan Nunther, the editor of London Feeds itself, in conversation with Monaco's Maylee Evans, after huge demand, the title Second Print Run is underway. So keep an eye out on the publisher Open City's website for more information. Let's next hear the week's hospitality headlines. Here is Monaco's Lillian Fawcett. Copenhagen restaurant Noma, often described as one of the best in the world, is to close at the end of next year. René Redzepi announced that Noma will become a test kitchen, but will continue to host occasional pop-ups in the Danish capital and abroad. The restaurant was named the world's best for three years running, from 2010 to 2012. 
The Philippines is facing a shortage of onions, so severe the vegetable is now more expensive than meat and is being smuggled into the country. Onions are selling for 550 Philippine pesos, or 9 euros a kilogram, compared with 8 euros for a kilo of beef. A series of typhoons last year, which damaged billions of pesos worth of crops, combined with high inflation, have triggered the crisis. And to a food shortage elsewhere, animal welfare groups are warning New Zealanders against rushing to buy pet chickens as the country experiences a shortage of eggs. Supplies dwindled after new legislation banned battery cages for layer chickens. Although the law has been planned since 2012, many farmers have struggled to change their infrastructure, leaving supermarket shelves empty. The boss of a leading British beer maker has paid out almost £500,000, or €560, Euros, of his own money following a misleading ad campaign. Customers were told 50 solid gold cans were hidden in cases of Brewdog, but it was later revealed they were only plated in the precious metal. Chief Executive James Watt approached the winners and offered them the cash equivalent of the cans. And those are the week's food and drink headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Lillian. You are with the menu on Monocle 24. For lovers of chocolate, there is a business in New York which just might be your new favourite. The Cocoa Store curates chocolates from all over the world by artisan makers who use top-quality beans and no artificial additives. Our George and Godwin took a stroll to Union Square recently to hear more about it from the founder, Pepe Di Giacomo. The Cocoa Store is, um, as a matter of fact, I believe is the only store left in New York City that just sells only chocolate. It is a very hard thing to do. Pretty much all the chocolate stores doing what we do go out of business because it's impossible to sustain. As a matter of fact, that's exactly uh, what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm sustaining my own store by doing something else because otherwise I would have been gone out of business already myself. It's about selling fine flavors cacao. So it's a whole different category. And uh, it, keeps, uh, it keeps growing and expanding uh, because more and more people has growing cacao becomes more sustainable. Uh, have decided to start growing variety of beans that were no longer found. It's a little bit the same with wine or many other types of food. And this is exactly how we describe ourselves, like a wine store of chocolate. Uh, It's a curated collection. We do not make anything here. We just try to find artisanal chocolates that are as much as possible, as, as artisanal as they can get. Uh, The difference between us and many other stores that sell chocolate is that sometimes you go to a store that have some chocolates, you know, maybe they have four or five bars from a specific maker. Our concept is the opposite. Once we adopt a maker, we try to have their entire line. Uh, Sometimes even if I have some of the bars that are not my favorite, but, you know, palettes are very different. So maybe somebody likes a specific bar from that maker that I don't like personally. So, But my purpose is to represent that maker here in New York City and to offer them a showcase. 
Now, the difference is um, sometimes who grows chocolate doesn't know how to make it, and who makes it doesn't know how to grow it. Uh, but there are some cases where, and that's, you know, all the makers in the store have to be bean to bar at least, in the sense that they have to start from roasting the cacao beans to the final product. Um, the final product could be a bar, could be a bonbon, could be a truffle. Uh, of course, we specialize, specialize mostly in uh, chocolate bars. Then there are some cases where the growers are also becoming the makers, and that's the best case scenario. Uh, that's when you have uh, something called tree-to-bar. So it's really from the seed to the final product, and, and that's the best. It could be the same, you know, with wine, because if you think about it, people who grow wine most of the times end up making it, um, and sometimes they have to hire an enologist to, to, to come up with the, the great way to recreate that wine year after year. So chocolate is very similar in the sense that the kind of chocolate that we sell here uh, is subject to uh, different harvests, if you want to be so specific with it. Um, the genetic of cacao is very complicated, and I'm not even going to go there uh, because I'm not an expert in it. And I, I think that it's important for me also that whoever makes the chocolate in the store shares, shares the proceeds from what they make with the growers because... What I'm seeing, especially here in the U.S., where marketing is so good, you know, um, and you see beautiful packaging and makers, you know, using all the labels. I'm artisanal, I'm bean-to-bar and all these kind of things. But at the end of the day, I'm not 100% sure, and that's something that frustrates me. Even though um, many, the majority of the chocolates that we sell here are transparent in the sense that you know exactly where the cacao comes from. Now, do I live in the country where that person is growing the cacao, and can I be sure that that farmer can sustain um, his or her, fa or her family with what they make out of growing cacao? I'm not 100% sure. I can only hope that's my goal. Mm -hmm. So that's why the best way would be to have the grower that's the whole thing because you know that you know they, they can make a living out of it but looking at the trend of several countries if i look at ecuador for example or peru and how many people are starting to grow uh, cacao again colombia as well for example it gives me hope and that you know if there is this interest something is happening so from far away that's all I can say. Mm. So, I mean, really, it's also about making us more mindful of what we're consuming to really think about where this comes from, how it's grown, are the working practices fair, are there additives in it, how pure is the product? Yes, um, purity is definitely something that uh, matters, of course. Uh, you know, all the chocolate bars here do not contain any lecithin or vanilla, you know, the ingredient is pure because it's so good. The idea is that the cacao in these chocolate bars is so amazing that you don't need much other than maybe sugar or some makers decide to add some cacao butter just for creaminess. And there is a lot of slavering in cacao, as we know. 
so when you go to a supermarket and you pay two ninety nine for a chocolate bars, you have to think. The same way when you buy some clothes that are super inexpensive, you know that something along the line there is not right. Um, and especially if people could understand what it takes to make a chocolate bar. Uh, we do chocolate tasting classes here, and we explain how much cacao it takes to make a bar and the entire process, just to make people aware and to make them understand of how much labor nature is involved and then there is the human aspect the intervention and then there is the making of the bar there are so many components that is virtually impossible uh, unless you're, you're selling mass chocolate and you're adding a lot of other things and there is slavery involved to, to sell chocolate for such an inexpensive price we've been open just celebrated our ninth year anniversary. The reason why the store still exists is because of my uh, personal funding of it and also because we uh, have an event space that supports the existence of this, this place. I call this a little bit of a hobby because um, there's no way that I could make a living out of it. So in this in a certain way, this store does not sustain me, but still I'm very passionate about spreading, you know, the word of chocolate and make sure that, you know, all the, the, the makers and the growers somehow benefit from this. But ultimately also the people get to try the real thing, amazing chocolate. And we're constantly trying to expand the uh, number of countries that we represent that grow cacao, but great cacao, because there are also countries that grow like not very good cacao. And uh, so we're constantly trying to do that. We're tr constantly trying to find uh, a bar made with a new variety of uh, bean. You know, the, the, the next best thing that when you try it is going to make you go, wow. So, uh, so that's the goal. It's a joy for me. To, to find that perfect bite of chocolate. Uh, finally, Peppy, what is it that drives you? Why? Why do you do this? Insanity. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been uh, passionate about food. Always, since I can remember. Uh, since I was little, I wanted to be a chef at five. Uh, I never became a chef, but I was at one point in my life in the restaurant business. But food has always been what drives me when I wake up in the morning I think about food that's the last thought when I go to sleep it's it's a disease I think at some point I don't know I, I just felt like chocolate deserved more of my attention who knows maybe 10 years from now I'll discover that it's something else but for now chocolate is all my focus and attention because every day I learn something new and as I mentioned before it's been nine years now and every day I come here and I discover something about chocolate that I didn't know. I try a bite of chocolate that I never had before. My palate keeps evolving and changing. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I just said this. Uh, what I used to like nine years ago, I probably don't like anymore now. Uh, it's the same for pretty much everything that you eat. Uh, you know, once you move forward, you can't go back with food, I feel. 
Pepe de Chacom, the founder of the Cocoa Store in New York, speaking to Monocle's Georgina Godwin. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in San Francisco. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And, of course, you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippip. Our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Billy Joel with New York State of Mind. Thanks for listening and until next week. Some folks like to get away, take a holiday from the neighborhood. Hop a flight to Miami Beach or to Hollywood. But I'm taking a greyhound on the Hudson River line. I'm in a New York state of mind